Our reading tonight is taken from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 to 9, which is on page 1211 on the Church Bibles. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this weekend, as you well know, it's the celebrations of the Queen's uh, official 90th birthday. She was, of course, biologically 90 in April, I think, and, uh, but she has an official birthday, and that was yesterday. And there's a weekend of celebrations, and this morning we looked at, uh, particularly, at her faith. We saw from uh, part of the epistle to, of Peter's, that, uh, if you like, God's thought on uh, government and where the monarchy fits into that. We looked at the, uh, the Queen's um, personal faith revealed through largely her, um, her Christmas uh, speeches and some other recordings. And then we looked at the coronation service and see how that is also all just based. It's full of Christian stuff. And uh, it was novel and beneficial. This evening, we're looking more at uh, how things have changed during her reign. She acceded to the throne on the 6th of February 1952, upon the death of her father, and she was crowned on the 2nd of June 1953. So she's reigned for over 64 years. And during that time, things have changed. Like, for example, many things have been for good, particularly technological advances. Other things have been really kind of detrimental. Some are an enormous blind spot upon our generation and our world. But there is one person who never changes. So we're going to see, um, have a few slides to begin with, then we're going to have a video clip, and after that we're going to briefly look at the one who never changes from that passage in the book of Hebrews. So, the Queen's enthronement. It was a kind of a big event. It was, um, it was uh, well, the two months before, more television sets were sold in those two months than have ever been sold since. Because actually hardly anybody had television sets in 1953. Um, the BBC had been televising things since 1936. But um, I guess TVs were comparatively uh, expensive. And what they did show only lasted for a few hours. It started about five and finished about ten. And on Sundays, it didn't happen between six and about half seven because people were encouraged to go to church and not watch television. Well, ITV pitched up in 1956 and BBC Two in 1964. And the whole thing went colour in 1967. And uh, this was the test card, which I think they still use today. But things have changed. I used to sort of think, when I talked to my grandparents or my aunts, and of uh, how they lived in such primitive times. Now you'll probably think, when I show you a few pictures, gosh, he is ancient, isn't he? He did live in primitive times. Even some of you are laughing, you see. Here's a telephone. There is no dial notice. You see, what you had to do, I remember doing it as a kid, you pick it up and you speak to a nice lady at the end, it was always a nice lady, 
and you'd ask for um, a telephone number. It would only be three or four digits. There weren't many people had telephones. And so you tell her what number you want, and she would connect you. And if she wasn't busy, she'd listen in too. In fact, I was talking to one of our members who, uh, a couple of weeks, I won't say how long ago, um, a while ago, sometime in the last 20 years, who, um, who actually was a telephonist and confessed to listening in to the phone calls that Princess Margaret, the Queen's sister, would make to Peter Sellers. Well, that's what passed for telecommunications. This is what passed for a calculator. Pretty chunky thing. And uh, these are some of the things I didn't have when I was at primary school. I didn't have a car. I think this is an A40, I think, or 60, or 30, I don't know. But we had one of those by the time I was at the end of primary school. We didn't have one of these, a washing machine, when uh, I was at primary school. Didn't have a fridge or a freezer. In fact, didn't have central heating the whole time I was at school at all. But, uh, and we certainly didn't have iMacs, iPods, iPads, and iPhones, but we did have iRons. Now, I'm really kind of, uh, I'm really milking it on this because I've never actually seen one of these I can recall in use. They would stick that over a range and heat it up by convection. I think my parents always had electric irons. But I do remember when I was at primary school being stuck in a tin bath in front of a fire in order to get clean. And I do remember having tin baths where clothes were washed by rubbing up against that washboard and then being put through a mangle to wring out all the surplus water. And uh, I do remember by the time I got into the sort of sixth form that my mum had acquired a mini, which would have been a great babe magnet, but I was hermetically sealed by education uh, from girls between the ages of 11 and 22 because we had selective and separated education. We still had environmental disasters in, the, in those days, Apparently, just before I was born, in 1952, there were great floods in Somerset and in 1953 down the east coast of England, and many people were killed. In fact, another environmental disaster was this, the great smog of 1952. If you put fog and smoke together, you get smog. And this occurred in December, just over 10 days, when uh, there was so much smoke being kind of... Um, burnt up by all the coal for the fires in the homes, that there was an anti-cyclone which had the effect of trapping the smoke, and that combined with um, that, that, that the density of, um, of the smoke mixed with the fog that was then meant that 4,000 people in London died over 10 days. In fact, most of them died on just two days. When I was... Uh, 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 almost 10. Where I grew up in Herne Bay, the sea froze. That pier is three quarters of a mile long. Well, it was. It's fallen down now, but it was three quarters of a mile long, and the sea froze out that far, and it was covered. The ice was covered in snow. But in the 60s, we could play football, and none of that kind of pansy, non-contact stuff that we see today. It was much more robust and we won. 
the World Cup winners, 1966. And um, it was a great celebration. It was a great celebration that we won the World Cup there, 4-2 against the West Germans. Um, but uh, until the early 60s, 1964, I think, if you were a bloke, it wasn't so much a case of going out to work when you were 18. You may already be in work, actually, from the age of about 15. And only about 5% of people um, would have gone to university. There was something else that would occupy your time for two years, and that was national service. Now, that was not some kind of nice kind of voluntary work. It was this. It was after a hefty dose of square bashing, drilling, they would uh, send you off to fight somewhere in some far-flung place of our empire or commonwealth, whichever it was called at the time. And you'd do that for two years. You'd either fight, or if you were lucky, you'd sunbathe. And, you know, you could see the world. All these little red dots are all places you could get sent to. There are people in our kind of congregation, some of the older guys, they'd have to be a bit older than me, um, who, who went to some of these places. Now, you might think that the Pacific, that little island in the Pacific would have been a good little posting, but you'd be mistaken. It's Christmas Island, and it's where what we used for testing our atomic bombs. So, sadly, some guys were not properly protected, and they suffered the adverse effects of radiation uh, many, many years uh, later. But you could end up in somewhere like Malaya fighting the communists, or you could be in the Mau a fight in Kenya fighting the Mau Mau insurrection, as guys in church were. But all the way through, from 1968 to about 2002, there were what they would call the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And on this particular day, the 27th of August, 1979, the Queen's cousin, Lord Mountbatten was out fishing with family members on a lock and his boat was blown up by the provisional IRA. At exactly the same time, 18 paratroopers were blown up by an IRA bomb at Warren Point. A few, uh, in the 90s, the MP for Basingstoke was a Christian. When he'd come to church here with us, he would come with six armed policemen. They would sit in that corner and that corner and you'd have to tell them if you were gonna do something out the ordinary because they would be quite jumpy. Two would be outside, and one would patrol, and one would sit in the car, ready to go. There were bombs planted at Basingstoke Railway Station. Fortunately, they didn't go off. Of course, in the 50s and 60s, the death penalty was still in existence. And the last woman to be hung, Ruth Ellis, was hung in 1955. She attended Fairfield's primary school, just round the corner. She was uh, hung for killing her lover. The last two men to be hung were Peter Allen and Gwyn Evans, who were simultaneously hung in two separate prisons in 1964 for the murder of John West, a 53-year-old laundry van driver. The death penalty was abolished in 1969. Then, uh, I wonder whether you could pass the 11 plus today. Selective education was the norm, hence I was separated out from girls at the age of 11. It was a test, if you passed, 20 to 25% of you would go off to grammar schools, 
The rest would go to secondary modern schools. Positively, it was a meal ticket out for many working class kids who would otherwise face a pretty bleak future. And lots of working class kids got the chance to get to the top by passing that one test. I mean, kids I was at school with in my class um, had dads who delivered newspapers, drove cement trucks, were farm labourers. From my primary school, there was one kid who, um, his dad worked on a, a knitting machine in a local textile factory. Um, and the other guy from our primary school in our class, his dad ran the factory. Incidentally, the guy whose dad was the knitter did far better in life than the one whose dad was the accountant. The result was much greater social mobility. A much higher percentage of state school kids got into places like Oxford and Cambridge than in fact happened today. In fact, in the 60s, the prime ministers were all from what you might call the terraces. And uh, we were ruled by grammar school kids from working class families, from Huddersfield, Broadstairs and Grantham respectively. Harold Wilson in the 60s, Ted in the early and mid 70s, Ted Heath, a conservative in the early 70s, and Mrs. Thatcher throughout the 80s. The children of a factory chemist, a carpenter and a grocer respectively. They all went to Oxford, the first two on scholarships. In other words, they had it all paid for them. They came from poorer backgrounds. Wilson was by far the cleverest. He got nine alphas in his final paper at, uh, at Oxford. Mrs. T was probably the most notable. Harold Wilson was known for his pipe. And the government in his day owned just about everything. Travel agents and bookmakers included, would you believe. Ted Heath was known for his sailing and for the country going on strike rather too often. I remember doing exams in the winter where... Uh, we had to do it under candlelight because it was our turn for our particular part of town to be turned off. Mrs. T was known for her handbag and woe betide you if you got on the wrong side of her. Like Ted Heath, she was a target for IRA bombs, most notably the Brighton bomb in 84, which killed five people and injured 31 seriously. The government then was more a meritocracy. People got somewhere in life based more on merit than the family that they were born into. Um, whereas today, we're ruled by tots, if you like, <laughs> to uh, compare it to terraces. Interestingly, Tony Blair, who studied PPE at Oxford, politics, philosophy, and economics, with a grammar school friend of mine, who went on to teach David Cameron and Boris and et al. at Eton. He says, 40,000 pounds buys you one grade better than you deserve. That's 40,000 pounds a year, by the way. Gets you one grade better than you deserve. But it was tough if you failed the 11 plus. But fortunately, in many counties, there was a 13 plus. Two people I know who failed the 11 plus went on to do rather well. One is Glyn Harrison, who's an Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Bristol University. Another one is Lord Plant, who's a, an honorary lay canon of our cathedral. 
and he's been variously Professor of Law at Southampton, Oxford and London universities. He not only failed his 11 plus, he failed the GCSE, well the equivalent, twice. So if you don't do as well in your exams as you'd hope, have another go, get stuck in, it's never too late to learn. The average wage in the 1950s was £9 for a man and 5 for a woman, whereas today it's 500 or £318. Home ownership in 1952 it was 30%, today it's 70%. In 52, the average price of a house was less than many people earn in a month today. So that's the figure, £1,891 could buy you a house. Today it would be something like £200,000. But of course we've had inflation, so that £1 then is the equivalent of £24.34 now. So if you went into Poundland in 1952, not that it existed, what would cost you a quid today would have cost you 4p then. We also went decimal in 1971. My gran could never get over that. She says, what's that in real money? But, um, you know, it was introduced in 68. And what used to be called a shilling is now what a 5p piece, uh, it was a 5p piece. And what was a, a florin is actually what is kind of two shillings is what a 10p piece would look like. Usual Sunday attendance in the Church of England, as in all mainstream denominations, has kind of nosedived since, uh, well, this is just from 1968. Although there is some increase amongst Afro-Caribbean and new churches, but overall it is a significant reduction. Far fewer children grow up in the church, and so the only way the church is ever going to grow nowadays, apart from reproduction, is, um, and I know someone's doing her bit, um, that, um, that uh, you know, uh, is you have to persuade people. The example of our life and the cogency of our explanation for life has to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 52, if you were born, so I've got about 16 years left to live, according to this. Um, I was born in the end of 53. If you were a girl, you got a, quite five years more. Today, it would be more like 91 and 94. And the pill, that's probably one of the most um, uh, radical technological um, discoveries, inventions of the 20th century. Up until the contraceptive pill, um, in about 1963, if a bloke had unprotected sex with a girl and got her in the club, as they called it, you'd probably end up marrying her or the baby would end up being adopted. It's good that we're able to plan when and how many children we have, but the pill is not without side effects, both in terms of one's health, but also in terms of the social consequences. One of which has been much greater promiscuity sex particularly has been separated from reproduction and become a recreational activity. Men can get what they want without commitment. Women are assumed to ensure that no baby would result. Cohabitation has regularized relationships, but that is still provisional and quite temporary. Marriage would take late take place later, if at all. 
having babies got delayed, so particularly the nations of Western Europe, the fertility rate has dropped. And we would fail to maintain our population unless we had migration at the rate of about 200, 250,000 a year. The average family size in 52 was three and a half children. Today it's about 1.7. 4% then were born outside what they called holy wedlock. Today it's over 50%. Divorce in 52 was 33,000 a year. Today it's 120,000 a year. Babies, they were tough little blighters. I was trying to find a photograph of me looking like some kind of pub bouncer sitting in a great big silver cross pram in a garden, guarding a bulldog, but I couldn't find it. Frustrating. But at least we had the opportunity to burst into life. Our life was not denied us. The biggest, I feel, um, adverse change in the Queen's reign has been that babies are denied life. That's a picture of, that's a graphic of a child at 14 weeks. Today, over one in five children who are conceived are denied the right to life. Here's an actual picture of a child at 20 weeks. In 1953, there were over 800,000 births and there were recorded 244 what would then have been illegal abortions. In 1968, a year after the Abortion Act, there were 950,000 almost babies born and 23,991 were legally terminated. 2014, look at the figures. You add them together, you get how many babies were born in 1968. But today, over 200,000 in the United Kingdom are denied the right to life. But 760,000 are still born. It is, I think, the most awful thing that is permitted in our country. It is, it is the blind spot of our generation, just as the blind spot of the 18th century was the slave trade. Dr. Anthony Levatino has performed over 1,200 abortions before a life-changing conversion on the issue. And he's narrated four videos. They're, they're simple, they're factual, they're not at all graphic. They're just, they're, they're graphic, they're cartoons, really. Um, you can find them on abortionprocedures.com. And I thought that it's so important that we actually know what happens that it's worth spending four minutes to show you. The video used is uh, medically accurate. It uses the right terminology. Computer animation is not graphically violent. It depicts one, the one I'm showing is the one of the second trimester method, which is uh, carried out between the 13th and 24th week of pregnancy. It's called dilation and evacuation. It's a surgical procedure during which an abortionist first dilates the woman's cervix and then uses instruments to dismember and extract the baby from the uterus. So it's worth watching and informing us. We'll watch this and then I'll close by addressing the text briefly. Now we know if we didn't. 
Well, times uh, change. Each century has its blind spots and has its positives. One person, though, who never changes is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to turn with me to uh, page um, one, yeah, 1211, we'll have a look at it together. There are just three verses to consider. We read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today forever. It's a transition verse between 7 and 9. Verse 7, he's urged to remember your leaders. And verse 9, do not be led astray or away by diverse or strange teachings. Remember your leaders. Three times in this chapter, their leaders are mentioned. We are to obey them, 17. We are to convey greetings to them, 24. And his readers were to remember them, verse 7. Now, in 17 and 24, their leaders were obviously alive and active. But in verse 7, their leaders from earlier days, who have now completed their service, so their whole life is open to review by their followers and disciples, so that if there is a positive evaluation, they should imitate them. Because by their teaching and example, they have shown the right path to tread. Being dead yet still they speak, in other words. The memory of their faith is still alive in the memory of those who knew them. And here we have more than the written record. We have the written record lived out and applied for all to see. The track record can be reviewed. Some new things on the Christian scene, they come along from time to time. It may be that uh, a lot of people are getting excited about something or other, but you may well be kind of wary of it. That's time to kind of recall the leaders, recall those who introduced you to faith in Christ, who taught you the word of God, who provided an example that you can track over their entire lifetime, and you think, what would they have done? Well, time tells. But people who have built up a sound track record of following Christ throughout their adult life, right to the grave, are often good people to reflect upon if we've known them, either personally or through their writings. Hebrews 13, 7, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So if we're young, it is vital that we know older Christians whose profession has stood the test of time, who have been steady, faithful and wise, who've seen it all before, and who have known when to go for it and for when to be wary. Personally, I can think of two of my crusaders, now urban saints, leaders, who uh, made immense sacrifices. Uh, one evening and one afternoon a week, they would devote their time to teaching us lads uh, the Christian faith, teaching us the Bible. We learnt the Christian faith and we had great fun in sport and camping, and I often think back to them, now of course long dead, one died when he was only 36, the other lived to an old age. They completed their life. They lived out the gospel that they'd shared with us, and it stood the test of time. No add-ons, nothing kind of doctrinally or morally novel. They simply uh, 
followed and taught the word of God, and it was illustrated by their lives. And the leaders, they are urged to remember and to consider the outcome of their way of life and to imitate their faith. These were the ones who had formed their Christian community. They had fostered it by their teaching and by their example of faith and had run the, the, the race unwavering to the end. And again, I think of a couple of, uh, of old, well, one was a friend, one I did meet a few times in life. The first was an old friend who's called the Colonel, who I occasionally mention in sermons. He took me aside when I was a curate and straightened me out and directed me on the right path. Or I think of John Stott, an outstanding example of faithful and effective Christian service, who really did live out what he discovered the Bible taught. That was his default position. If he can discover that that's what the Bible teaches, that is what he has to think, that is how he has to live. Why? Because that was Christ's attitude to the scriptures. And he followed that. And he was really exemplary. Time has proved that he was right on a number of things which at the time he wrote them, he would have been in the minority. They've all died in the faith. Their Christian lives completed a closed book, but a record that one can see has worked. It has been lives which have been tried, tested, and not found wanting, the kind that it is worth imitating. And then verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. In other words, don't be swept off your course by uh, all sorts of outlandish ideas. In their case, given their Jewish backgrounds, it is after all a letter to the Hebrews, it was a case of returning to their old dietary laws, kosher food and all that. That was all part of the old age. All that ceremonial stuff in the Old Testament, that sacrificial system, that could never save anybody. But what it was designed to do was to illustrate so that we could understand the problem and how Christ, through his sacrifice, managed to fix it. In the words of the song, only by grace can we enter, only by grace can we stand. We contribute nothing to our salvation other than our sins which need to be forgiven. And we don't have to add anything to the gift of salvation which God gives. So beware of add-ons. In contrast to those who have died, and in contrast to diverse ways and uh, really adverse teaching, which is kind of here today and gone tomorrow, we have Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not die. He does not deviate. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is eternally trustworthy in his position as High Priest and Son of God, and he had one plan of salvation which he concocted with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the dawn of time, and he was not derailed from achieving it. Yesterday, he's been active in creation. If you flick to Hebrews chapter 1, which is page 1201, we read verses 2 to 4. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we're talking about Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the world, who's the radiance of God's glory. If you imagine God is the sun, we feel his effects through the sun's rays. The exact representation, literally the icon of God, the one through whom we see the reality of God. He not only created, but he sustains all things. He speaks and it is done. He provides purification for sins. It's as if we're polluted and he has the only disinfectant that works. And having achieved the clean-up, he sat down. Job done. Today, today he offers us salvation that he's obtained for us. Genesis 1, in the creation story, on day 7, God rests. He's done his work, he now rests. That is a picture of the rest that he invites us to join him in and eternal rest. And in case the people of Jesus, of the writer to the Hebrews day, thought that somehow um, Joshua, leading the wandering Israelites after 40 years into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, was the rest, then we read in chapter 4, 7 to 10 of Hebrews, we read this, which corrects them if they're thinking erroneously. 4, 7 to 10, 1,203. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, in other words, it's about 300 years after Joshua entered the Promised Land, David is inspired to write this psalm, which has in it, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. So it's there. It's an offer. Eternal rest with God on offer now. So much so that the writer urges them to enter it. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their examples of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And lastly, forever. He brings um, uh, the, um, the, all, the, all the blood and gore of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He flags that up and he points out its obvious deficiencies. It never achieved salvation for anyone, but hopefully it helped them understand what Jesus and his sacrifice did achieve and is effective. Hebrews 10, verse 12. 
But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Human priests had to stand there every day, it says in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. What a contrast. You have the human priest who stands there, day after day, repeating the same stuff, and it doesn't work. And then you have the divine priest, high priest, Jesus Christ, who sits, a sign that he has completed his work. He has done the necessary. And because he's done the necessary, he only needs to do it once, because his sacrifice is effective. As I end, one of my aunts was born in 1908. Five years before she was born, a couple of American brothers called Wright managed to get some old pram wheels, a bit of string, a bit of wood, some cloth to wrap round to form wings, and an engine, probably not much bigger than double the average lawnmower. And they managed to fly a few hundred meters. By the time my aunt was 61 in 1969, men had reached the moon, three of them, and two of them landed on it and bounced around for a few hours and then came back. That's an enormous change in just 60 years. Some of you will have seen many changes, some even maybe approaching 50 years or more or so. But whatever's changed in our last in our lifetime and whatever will change in your lifetime in the future there will always be through the ups and downs of life one person who never changes that is the Lord Jesus Christ so follow the ones who have gone before you who have shared the word of God with you and proved it in a light in the sense of tested it by living it out credibly and effectively. And especially those who have run the race, whose outcome you can see, and who now enjoy their eternal reward in heaven. Amen.